Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nelly with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. James Cook. Dr. Cook is the William and Catherine Allen Distinguished Chair and the Chief of Orthopedic Research at the University of Missouri. He was the senior author on a paper entitled Use of a Hyperosmolar Saline Solution to Mitigate Pro-Inflammatory and Degradative Responses of Articular Cartilage and Meniscus for Application to Arthroscopic Surgery, which was published in the December 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Jimmy, thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Clay. So let's start out with the background of the study and the impetus of the study and why you guys went about bringing this study about and then kind of the basics of the of the setup itself. Yeah, this has actually been a research focus for us for um, almost seven years now. And it's one of my favorites because it actually came from a resident. And so, um, you know, when we're talking to the residents, I always say, what questions do you have? What couldn't you answer for a patient or an attending today? And actually, this is one that came from one of our residents a few years back, Nick Capito. And the question he asked me was, why in the world do we use saline or LRS for our scope irrigation fluids um, when they're so different from synovial fluid? And, and isn't there something better for that? And so I think that's a great question, right? So we kind of started talking through the variables, you know, things that we could control and maybe um, make a difference with. And so we decided to, we decided to start with osmolarity. Um, and so synovial fluid is about four to 500 milliosmoles per liter. Well, these uh, isotonic solutions that we use are around 300 or so. And, um, and then there's some good evidence in the literature that uh, hyperosmolar solutions, so up in the range of about 600, have beneficial effects on chondrocytes and the joint environment. So we, we really started there. We really just started with some simple in vitro studies using canine cartilage, since it's a good model that we have in the lab. Um, and then we did a preclinical canine study. And then actually we have a prospective randomized double-blinded clinical trial uh, for shoulder that was in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. And those two articles really set it up and they showed us that it was safe and chondroprotective. And then there were some potential clinical benefits um, with respect to less periarticular fluid retention and some of those associated complications that we see with that fluid you know, around the joint, uh, especially in the shoulder arena. And then um, even some potential benefits for post-operative pain. And then so where we got started with the arthroscopy one is another resident then came to us. He's also doing a PhD at, at uh, Mizzou, the first author on this paper, the son Oladeji. And he said, let's do this for knee. You know, this seems like it's working for shoulder and there's really probably so many more knee scopes. And so um, let's take this kind of basic science translational clinical research uh, to the knee. So that's the first paper that we're talking about today. And it's actually part of a series we can talk a little bit more about. And we were super, of course, excited to get it published in arthroscopy. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I remember you guys doing all that work and I remember Nick being super excited about that and the, taking it all the way. It's always impressive when you can take it from the lab and bench work and then translate that into something clinically like a randomized control trial and then and then show, you know, statistical right. and clinically significant differences. So, just with the nuts and bolts of this paper and then yeah, definitely would love to talk about the continuing line of study. Um in this study um, so you guys utilized both cartilage explants and meniscus pathology, and the explants were from tissue that was already being harvested either from a patient having get, getting a total knee arthroplasty or an osteochondral allograft. So just from a logistics standpoint, kind of take us um, through that, and, and in particular, that tissue 
do you think is that I know you guys kind of looked at a wide range of tissues, but that tissue obviously is probably not healthy tissue from the get go. So how did you mitigate that uh, when you looked at that and, and knowing that some of that tissue is probably not the healthiest tissue just at baseline? Yeah. And so I think you really hit the key point, at least for us, why this in vitro study, you know, the starting point, like you talked about, why that really is clinically relevant. And I would say, just as you pointed out, so we looked at both articular cartilage and meniscus explant. So, you know, the actual tissue. And, you know, Clay, one of my big mantras is the joint is an organ. And so we want to look at those multiple tissues to really get a handle on, you know, is this really clinically relevant? And then again, like you pointed out, so these were from actual patients with joint pathology. And so I think, you know, I think we've got to do this. And, and the tissues really range for the articular cartilage component, what we used in the study. It was a range, which is great, right? Because I think we have to have real life. And it's, you know, not every patient is a single impact that we would do in the lab or some other type of insult to the cartilage. So these were real life samples. And most of them were in the um, grade one to three ICRS scoring system for articular cartilage pathology. And so I think that, again, made it both pretty standardized, but where we're looking at more of the whole joint and then a more real life application to it. So um, I think that study design is, has some good relevance, but then it also allowed us, which the other thing I think is good is it, you know, so many of these studies have looked at, yeah, this does something, these hyperosmolar solutions do something, but haven't really boiled it down to mechanisms. And that's, again, what, what I think we was a distinguisher for, for us. So we were able to look at, you know, what could be the mechanisms of decreased pain or chondro protection um, in these samples since we had actual tissue samples. Yeah, that's great information. So how applicable do you think this might be to say maybe like, because the average age patient, I think from this tissue is 66.9 years old. So how applicable might this be to say a young patient, a 20 year old patient that has an ACL tear, and then we know get some of those pro-inflammatory mediators, uh, you know, uh, that, that's, that happen within the joint in the first 48 hours or so too. So do you think that the applicability of this would be similar to that or maybe slightly different or how would that apply? Yeah, great question. I would say a little bit different. I would say, you know, to, to us, this was more the worst case scenario, but still within the realm of applying to, you know, scope patients, not total knee or not big open procedures, because even though it was from those patients, and really the reason for that, right, is that we were resecting tissues we could use so that we could ethically use it because they would be otherwise discarded. But then when we went into that, you know, we went away from the major lesions and looked at the more healthy cartilage that would be a, a little bit more like our ACL patients, our meniscectomy patients, you know, those. So, so I do think you, you definitely need to look at that, like you're pointing out, and that is definitely one limitation. But I do think in, if you look at that as a worst case scenario type, we can apply it to those patients. And, and at least because we did look at mechanistically as well, you know, we can say those same mechanisms will be a place because we know that for the ACL versus the, even the total knee patient, those mechanisms of inflammation and degradation are the same, right? It's just severity and duration. And then some of the other things that are brought into play along with that severity and duration. Um, so yeah, so long-winded way to say, I think it is applicable as a worst case scenario for our typical knee scope patient. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great. So does duration of exposure matter, do you think? Like, I think you guys, I think the exposure to the hypertonic and isotonic saline was, I think it was three hours for each explant yeah. specimen. Does duration of exposure matter or play a role? I think it does. So great question again, too. And we kind of said, you know, a little bit, hopefully, maybe worst case scenario, though, certainly, you know, we'll have some of those more complex cases 
meniscal transplants and things like that, that, you know, could push the three hour mark for that. And, you know, I think that was about our average for the um, shoulder surgery cases that we talked about. So we said, again, kind of what's going to be the longest you would be putting fluids through a joint um, during an average procedure. I think it was, you know, I think you're going to see less effects if this is a 15 minute diagnostic scope versus that meniscal transplant that we just talked about. So we did just want to go a little bit more to the extremes of that as well, too. So yeah, definitely take that into consideration as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think I, like you, like you mentioned, maybe the meniscus transplant or some of our multi-leg knee reconstructions or something, they may, they may right. go that, that long, but the kind of the standard yeah. ACL surgery or, or standard knee scope certainly would be a little bit on the shorter end of that. So you mentioned that this is kind of one in a line of, of studies and, and things coming down the line. Can you kind of take us through where the research is going with this and, and where things are headed? Yeah, two things. So um, we did, we've actually completed now and are just submitting to arthroscopy. So we're going back to you all. Thank you so much for um, accepting this one and publishing it. We, we love to get the journal because that's really the target audience for sure, right? And so um, we're just submitting then. We did a prospective randomized double-blind clinical trial for knee scopes. So similar kind of deal to our shoulder scopes. And um, we did see in that to, to a little bit unveil the curtain before the reviewers have a chance that it is um, – we, we did see less scope irrigation fluid used in the hyperosmolar solution versus the standard saline or lactated ringers. Shorter surgeries. Um, so what we were just talking about a little bit, maybe even the fluid extravasation component and, and the visualization and all that, maybe that can help um, even help you with the surgery as well technically. Um, lower pain scores initially. And even what was a cool one with this one that we didn't see in shoulders, we actually saw less narcotics used in the very early post-operative period. So day zero to three. So again, it does seem to be um, really coming to fruition in terms of the things that we thought it might be able to do. Um, and then we think, you know, the basic science stuff we're going to have to see on longer term outcomes to say, you know, is it making a real difference in what happens in that joint? I mean, you know, potentially you could see things like slower development of osteoarthritis, um, you know, different changes that are not quite as degenerative if we're protecting that cartilage and meniscus like we hope. That, that part is still hypothesis to be tested. But I think, you know, there's some mechanistic ways to do that. And then the other thing is that we've said is, that, wow, it does seem like from this article that we just published and our, our previous basic science work that it is, you know, both uh, anti-inflammatory and anti-degradative mechanism. And so we've actually then looked at another kind of souped up solution, if you will. And we've added then some FDA approved and, you know, clinically applicable anti-inflammatory agents to the solution to kind of make a Mizzou specific solution that we're now then testing further from there. So those are kind of the, the next stages for us. Wow. That's awesome. That's some really exciting research. I think that'll be, that'll be really interesting. And the fact you guys are able to get some randomized control trials done is, is really nice too. We, we just did a podcast recently talking about how difficult it is to do a well done yeah. randomized control trial. So, so taking it from the bench to the lab is, is great. And and certainly I, I certainly appreciate your, your mantra of the joint is an organ. I think I think about that <laughs> almost on a daily basis, actually, every single time I see a knee swell up or a knee and an ACL come in, I, I think about that pretty much every single time. So I certainly, uh, <laughs> Uh, that has been impressed well upon me. So, well, what is, what is everybody what is what is everybody that does arthroscopic knee surgery at Mizzou doing? Has this changed clinical practice for people? Is is this something that people are are now doing using hyperosmolar saline solution in every knee scope or only long long arthroscopic knee surgeries? Or is is, is it changing clinical practice for people yet? Or is it not quite there yet? Yeah, I would say a slow wave of changing clinical practice. So, you know, the participants in the study are really doing that for both shoulder and knee now. Um, and I think the cool thing is it, it's really pretty easy to do. So, 
super easy to make up. I mean, you literally take a, the, the, the hyper um, osmolar hypertonic saline solution, the 23.4% solution, take 120 mils of it, add it to your three liter bag of, of uh, isotonic saline or lactated ringers. And here, at least at Mizzou, that costs you 17 bucks um, per bag to do it. And so, you know, really uh, both logistically and cost effective wise, I think appropriate that way. And then again, you know, the good thing is, right, it's safe. So we definitely didn't have any problems with it, whether that be on a very basic science level. When we looked at site viability, we looked at matrix water content, all of those things. And then, of course, on the patient side. And so, yeah, people are, are um, starting to, to invoke it a little bit more. And I think we're making converts as we go. Well, that'd definitely be $17 well spent if it's chondroprotective <laughs> in any way or certainly mitigates that that, that, that pro-inflammatory response. So that's de- that that's definitely would be well worth it. Yeah, we, yeah. we've been really happy with it. And, you know, I think, you know, things here at Mizzou were pretty uh, practical, I think, and pragmatic about it. So that's made it easy to do that. And I think I think we're really shifting over to that. And, you know, maybe even then with the enhanced solution, you know, maybe that be even more effective and and um, more beneficial to our patients long term as well. Absolutely, that's terrific, Jimmy. Thank you very much for sharing your immense knowledge and wisdom, and for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Dr. Cook's article, Use of a Hyperosmolar Saline Solution to Mitigate Pro-Inflammatory and Degradative Responses of Articular Cartilage and Meniscus for Application to Arthroscopic Surgery, can be found in the December 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at arthroscopyjournal.org. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please remember to give us a five-star review and like us on your podcast device, and please join us next time.